you would turn again to 1 Corinthians 14. So we continue working our way through 1 Corinthians. And we want to talk again about pursuing love and the worship of the church. One of the things that's helpful for me is to think about uh, the purpose of the Bible. And one of the things I mentioned is that um, John Calvin and others will talk about uh, the last verse in chapter 13 when Paul says, But now faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Their comment is that all of the ministry of the church and the ministry of the word is ultimately meant to fuel our faith, our hope, and our love. And so that uh, the Bible reading you do, do during the week and the preaching of the word on Sunday, the purpose of the Holy Spirit giving us the word is that he might work through the word so that we might grow in our faith or might come to faith if we aren't already believing. And at the heart of that faith is a resting in Jesus in light of all that he's done for sinners. But the word also is meant to encourage us to grow in our hope. And we talked about hope earlier. Hope is trusting God's promises for the future. No matter what we're going through now, no matter what we'll go through tomorrow. And then finally, the word is meant to grow us in love, grow us in understanding what it looks like to love in various situations, to love various people. And all of it comes through God opening our eyes to understand the word of God and how it applies. How it applies to our guilt and our need for a savior. How it applies to the future and our need to trust God for what he's promised us. How it applies to my everyday life with my wife and my children, with you, the other people outside the body of Christ. Uh, What does it look like to love in these various relationships. And that's what the word of God is for. It's meant to help us know God. And know how he calls us to trust him. And how to love like he loves. And so I just encourage you. To fight the temptation to not read your Bible. Fight the temptation to neglect your Bible. But realize that it is the source of your joy and your peace. At the end of Romans. Paul says. May, may the God of hope. Fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Believing what? Believing the word of God. Believing the truth of God. The promises of God. Believing what he's called us to do in light of those things. And so um, the word of God is crucial to our lives. To feed us, to encourage us, and to help us. And that's why we preach and teach every Sunday. So what I'd like to do is have us look again at 1 Corinthians 14. And I especially want us to think about it from this perspective. I read something this just this week where um, there was a preacher who had an online church who believed that God told him to start a cryptocurrency of some kind and that God told him to tell people that they would become wealthy if they invested in that new cryptocurrency And that God told him that after collecting over $3 million from different people that he should use uh, $1.3 million of those dollars to pay off some taxes and to uh, spend on other personal needs. But it was all from the perspective of this is what God told me to do. Now I raise that because we can read 1 Corinthians 14 and think, well, Paul's talking about spiritual gifts and I'm not sure that how much that relates to my everyday life. Well, at the heart of what's going on here in this chapter is the issue of how does God communicate with his people? What should we expect? And how do we get direction for our lives? Now, obviously, in the first century, there was was this gift of prophecy through which people were instructed and directed. The question is, what does that look like today? And that's what we want to see is both what was happening then and what is happening today. And how does it apply to our hearing God as a congregation, our hearing God as individuals. And so I hope you'll um, continue just to think through this with me because I think it has all kinds of practical implications for us as a church as well as 
as individuals. So let's begin in verse 1 again, and I'll read through verse 19 today. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1 says, Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the church may receive edifying. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the notes or tones, rather, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, Who will prepare himself for battle? So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the spirit and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the spirit and I will sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying? For you're giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. This is the word of God. So I want to think some more about what Paul is saying here in this chapter. Obviously, he starts off talking about the importance of love. First Corinthians 13 is all about the fact that if we do anything without love, love for God, and loving like God calls us to love, then what we're doing is nothing in the eyes of God from the from his perspective. And so love is very, very important. We're highlighting that Paul calls us to pursue love and to do so, especially in this chapter, in the exercise of spiritual gifts. And last week we talked about the fact that love always seeks to edify. And just very briefly, again, the love that we're called to show is agape love, which is love for God, And loving like God loves. And so the basic idea here is that our love for God is to rule over and guide our love for everybody else, our love for other things. So that Paul is basically saying your love for God, Corinthians, ought to rule over, guide your love for each other. It should impact how you're Exercising spiritual gifts should impact how you're relating to each other in the body. You remember the Corinthians were the ones who were, some of them were showing up early, eating all the food and getting drunk, and the others would come later and have nothing to eat. And so you've got this church that's messed up in a lot of different ways, and Paul is saying your love for God and God's love, the kind of love that he has, is to rule and reign over all our other loves. And for me, what a most helpful ways to think about love for God, which can be a very nebulous thing. What does it mean to love God? Uh, Think about it this way, as I've already mentioned. It means to be pleased with God. 
if you're trusting Jesus to take care of your sin issue, then you can say, I am pleased with the God who had sent his son to die for my sin. And if you're putting your hope in God for the help you need, the happiness you long for, for what he's promised you, then you can certainly say, I'm pleased with the God who promises to meet all my needs and to make me truly and forever happy. Because that's really what we're all looking for. Um, We're looking for escape, deliverance from whatever punishment we might deserve, and we're looking for full and lasting happiness. And once we've found that in God through Jesus, we can legitimately say, as a Christian, I am pleased with God. Now, we might be like Job at times, trying to figure out what God is doing and not very happy about what God is doing. But fundamentally, we are pleased with God as we've come to know him and trust him in Jesus. As a result of that, being that's what Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He means if you're really pleased with me as your Lord and Savior, then you will believe that what I command you to do is really right and wise and good, and you'll seek to please me. So to be pleased with God and to live to please God is, is one way that's really helpful for me to think about loving God and letting that love rule all my other loves, my love for my family, my church, my coworkers, or whoever it might be. Because that's what Paul is calling for here, is to ask the question, in my relationships, is what is guiding me a love for God that is informed by the word of God? Or am I operating by a different standard? Am I trying to relate to people on a, another basis, based on my own common sense, based on what the world says is the way to handle things? Or am I really being ruled by love? And so he emphasizes the idea in the first five verses that if we're being ruled by love for God and God's love, then we'll want to edify each other in the body of Christ. And he contrasts tongues, the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. And he basically says in the first five verses that the gift of tongues is a way of believers to speak to God in worship. And that the gift of prophecy is a way of believers to speak to men on behalf of God. That it's a revelation from God through men to men. But he goes on to say there's, there's an issue with the way things are playing out in the church at Corinth. They had, they had elevated excuse me, the gift of tongues to the highest point. And they believed that that gift was really the greatest gift. And so they were... Evidently, based on what Paul says, coming together in worship and tongues was dominating their worship. And evidently, they were just speaking in tongues all together. And Paul is dealing with that reality, which still happens today in certain places and in certain churches. Um, And he's saying you need to really think about what's going on in your worship service and whether or not it truly is what is going to edify you as a believer, that's going to build you up in faith and in hope and in love. And he's going to argue in verses 6 through 19 that someone cannot be edified by something they don't understand. That your mind is crucial to understanding. And understanding is crucial to faith and hope and love. And so... Let's look at verses 6 through 19 today and think about it in light of this, for instance. Um, In the history of of the church, there have been other situations where uh, people have had the idea that it doesn't really matter if I understand what's going on as long as I believe there's something spiritual happening. Um, Can you think of another way that that has happened in the history of the church? Uh, The Latin Mass is one way it's happened in the history of the church. For for people to hear the Mass in Latin, but not to understand it, but to believe that somehow, because it was a spiritual activity, even though they didn't understand it, they must be uh, gaining some 
blessing from it. And the reformers spoke against that. Calvin, if you read his commentary on this very passage, will say that the Latin mass is a form of the same kind of mistake that the Corinthians were making. That the idea is, I don't need to understand to be edified. When Paul argues very clearly that um, understanding is crucial to edification. So in verse 6 he says, But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? People will look at this and they kind of parse this out by saying Paul is kind of raising pictures in the minds of the Corinthians. The first picture in verse 6 is basically a preaching illustration. He says, if I come to you and I preach, basically in a way that you can't understand, is that really going to profit you? Let's say I could speak in French, but none of you knew French. And I just decided this morning to preach in French. Would you walk away saying, boy, I just really was blessed by that message? Well, only if you really enjoyed hearing French, just like I like hearing English people talk. You know, that might be the only way you might have a positive comment on it. But the reality is that understanding is really important. And so he talks initially about, you know, if I don't preach to you in a way that you can understand, it's not really going to profit you. Then in verse 7 he says, yet even lifeless things either flute or harp, in producing a sound. If I do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? And so if the worship team got up here and they played in such a way, as Paul describes, that they're not really making a distinction in the tones. I'm not sure what all that means in terms of maybe just random uh, notes or whatever. Um, We probably would not be as blessed as we are by the worship team because of that, um, for, because of a lack of organized, intentional communication through the music and with the music. He goes on to say in verse 9, um, excuse me, uh, verse 8, for if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So in that day and time, if they wanted to rally the troops, and send them into battle, they'd blow the bugle. And they knew that certain sounds from the bugle meant certain things. But if some random guy picked up the bugle and didn't know what he was doing, and just you know, just made noises with the bugle, nobody would do anything. It would not be profitable. Verse 9, So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken for you will be speaking into the air so he's basically over and over again making the point that clarity is really important especially in the worship service in light of the purpose of communicating the truth he says in verse 10 there are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world and no kind is without meaning the word for language there is literally voice or all, all kinds of voices all kinds of um Ways in which speaking is taking place. And yet, typically, people speak to be understood. Um, Usually, if someone speaks, but they don't care whether they're understood, we tend to think there's something wrong, right? And so, understanding and meaning is always behind the idea of of speech and, and voices, Verse 11, he says, If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. And so from the Roman perspective, those who didn't speak Latin and those kinds of things, but spoke other language, were were considered barbarians because they could not be understood or easily understood. He says in verse 12, "So So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, Seek to abound for the edification of the church. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the spirit and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the spirit and I will sing with the mind also. So he's arguing 
especially in the context of the worship service, that whatever is done needs to be done in order that people can understand. And so he would say to them, to the Corinthians, if you're going to have tongue speaking in your worship service, you need to make sure it can be interpreted so that people understand what is taking place, what is being said. And so he says that in one sense, to pray in a tongue or to sing in a tongue means my spirit prays and my um, spirit sings. But he says it's better if we know what is being said, especially and essentially in the worship service. He says in verse 16, Otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying? The reality is when we pray together, we're listening to one another, and even though we're not praying ourselves per se, we are to be able to say amen if we agree, and therefore we join together in the prayers of others. In the same way as we worship together, we are to say the amen. We're, we're to understand what's being prayed. We are to understand what's being sung so that we in our hearts, or even with our lips, can say amen to what is taking place. Verse 17, for you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. He's not built up in faith and in hope and in love. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. So on the one hand, it's interesting. Paul in this chapter says, I wish all of you spoke in tongues. In fact, I speak in tongues more than any of you. But he says, when it comes to the worship service, I don't speak in tongues. Interestingly enough, I speak in a way that everyone can understand me. And I speak clearly because I want the truth to be communicated clearly to those who are there. And so the emphasis in this section of 1 Corinthians 14 is in pursuing love, we're to pursue intelligible speech. And obviously in the first century, there's a lot going on in the first century. There's no completed New Testament. Everybody doesn't have a Bible. Um, In fact, most people, as I understand it, could not even read during that time. And yet, everything that needed to be evaluated, needed to be evaluated in light of what the apostles were teaching. And so you've got a situation where you've got what you might call frontier missions. You've got the gospel spreading through the world and new churches being established And yet they don't have, many of them don't have the scriptures or don't have much of the scriptures. And most people can't read. And yet God is moving to lead lead people to Christ, to draw people to Christ. They're coming to faith. And those new congregations need the truth. So how is God giving the truth? He's giving the truth through the letters of the apostles and the visits of the apostles but he's also giving it by the Spirit, by direct revelation to his people. That's what's happening in the first century because of the reality that they didn't have what we have today. And so it's helpful to understand that. And in the midst of that dynamic, Paul makes it very clear that understanding and the mind is crucial to what God is doing in calling people to faith and in calling people to growth in faith and in hope and in love. And that's why we see different scriptures that emphasize that. Uh, Romans 10 says, For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And a preacher is someone who clearly proclaims the truth. And so... The the gospel was going to go forward through clear communication and that there was information, there was truth that needed to be clearly conveyed. And Paul is emphasizing that. In Romans 12, 
Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So basically Paul says, if you're trusting Jesus, the first thing you need to do is present your body, present your life to God, and make sure the first part of your body you present to God is your mind. And that's the implication of all that he says there. He says that we are to present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice. And then he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so we're called to give our life to God because we're pursuing our happiness in God. And we're, therefore, we're to give him our mind. In Ephesians 4 Verse 20, Paul says, But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth." So, he says, as believers, we're to put off our old sinful ways. We're to put on Christ's likeness. And the key to that is being renewed in our minds. Which means I begin to see things like God sees things. I begin to trust what God says is true. I begin to have a worldview that's that's informed by God's worldview. So, we begin to see things as God sees things. And so obviously Paul is arguing in this chapter that the Corinthians, if they're showing up and they're speaking in tongues all together and nobody knows what anybody's saying, then they're not having their minds renewed. Therefore, they're not growing in Christ. So it's not producing what God intends to take place when we get together. And so for all of us, we have to ask ourselves, Am I really living each day in light of the fact that I'm called to present my life to God because I'm trusting Jesus for the forgiveness of of my sins? I'm trusting God for my help and my happiness. And therefore, I give him my life. And giving him my life means I give him my mind. And I seek to grow in my understanding. My understanding of him my understanding of what it looks like to live the Christian life, my understanding of what it looks like to love those around me. And that means thinking hard. It means thinking hard about what the Bible says, thinking hard about what I hear on Sundays, makes thinking hard about what I'm reading, if I'm reading through a book or something, a Christian book, or even thinking hard about things that I'm hearing. Uh, through the music I listen to or through the news that I listen to or whatever it might be, that I am seeking to truly understand things from God's perspective, that I might trust Him in the ways I need to, that I might love in the ways that He calls me to love. This brings me to the primary application for today, which is the question, when we think about what's going on in the first century church, and then we ask What is going on today? Is the same exact thing going on today as was going on in the first century church? And I would say, no, it's not the exact same thing. But there are similarities. Because the same spirit who is at work then is at work now. The same spirit who is gifting believers now then is gifting believers then. One of the things that's interesting is to Uh, think about the question, what is the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit is doing all kinds of things. But if we just looked at what the the New Testament, if we read through our New Testament, we were to ask the question, what is the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit today? I think we would come to the conclusion that the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit, as you see what it says reading through the New Testament and how it plays out, 
primary ministry of the Holy Spirit is to help us understand what he gave us through the apostles. The ministry of the Holy Spirit in the first century was to give the apostles and give the church this, the New Testament. Since then, the ministry of the Holy Spirit has been primarily to open our eyes to understand what he's given the church in the New Testament. And so I talked about this a little bit uh, last week that um, if you think about those who are of the more reformed perspective on things, they will highlight the fact that um, different people in the reformed camp see things differently. But there is a strong strain of those like John Owen who would say that, yes, there's a difference between what was happening in the first century and what's happening today, but there's also a connection. And there are those like Puritans like William Perkins who actually wrote a book called The Art of Prophesying. This is a Puritan. He was not talking about the art of receiving direct revelations from God. He was talking about the art of faithfully preaching the Bible. So the Puritans would say, yes, the the gift of of prophecy continues today, but it doesn't continue in exactly the same form. It continues in the form of spirit-enabled, faithful preaching of the word of God. And that was the basis for my quote from John Owen last week. Why do, very briefly, why do some people argue that way? Why do they argue that everything that was going on in the first century isn't still happening today? But they would argue that there is some form of that still happening today to one degree or another. Well, as I kind of touched on, let me just lay out just a few um, passages here that I think are helpful to think about. In John 14, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he told the disciples, These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Now, he's talking specifically about the apostles. He's telling them that I'm going to leave, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and he's going to tell you, remind you of what I've said, and also disclose to you all that I want you to pass on to my people. Because that's reflected in John 16, where it says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. So what was happening in the first century? The Holy Spirit was making sure the apostles remembered what Jesus taught and also communicated to the apostles what further Jesus wanted them to teach in light of what he had already said. And in the churches, as the gospel is expanding and new churches are being established and new believers are being made, the Holy Spirit is directly revealing the same kinds of things to the churches which they are supposed to evaluate when somebody stands up, thus says the Lord, in light of what the apostles are writing and what the apostles have said. And so there's a continuity between the ministry of the Holy Spirit that is giving authoritative revelation to the apostles and the kind of revelation that was just happening in a congregation on Sunday mornings. There was a continuity there, all related to God's promise, uh, Jesus' promise that he was going to reveal to them the truth that they needed to know, to remember from what he had said, and the other things that he was going to disclose to them. And so that's why, if you read the book of Hebrews, it talks as if that period of time has come to a close, where fresh revelation, new revelation, um, direct revelation is being given. In Hebrews 1, one it says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, and these last days has spoken to us in his Son, 
whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. There's a sense in which Jesus is the final revelation. And obviously, what Jesus intended his own apostles to accomplish when he left. That's why it says in Hebrews 2 that it was first spoken through the Lord, speaking of Jesus. It was confirmed to us by those who heard, which speaks of the apostles. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. The idea there being is that the Holy Spirit was doing a work with the apostles to confirm that what they were saying was indeed the word of Jesus. All of that is just to say there's more I could say, but I'll just kind of wrap it up with this. Two final points. In Ephesians 2, Paul says there was a foundation being laid. He says in Ephesians 2, 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So Paul's perspective is there's something unique going on in the first century. There's some unique revelation going on, some unique direct revelation through the apostles and the prophets that was laying a foundation for the church. And one of the interesting things is the only references that we have to things like prophecy and tongues is in 1 Corinthians, um, Thessalonians, and the book of Acts. The later writings of the apostles, especially the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, where Paul says to Timothy and Titus, I want you to know how to conduct yourself in the household of God. He says nothing about tongues or prophecy. You would think if, if those things were still the focus and the feature of the worship of, of God at that point in the New Testament, that there would be something said to make sure that Timothy and Titus were following proper guidelines. And so that's part of the argument that there was a role, a revelatory role, that these gifts were playing initially, that even before the end of the New Testament, they were no longer the focus and the feature of the worship of the church. But the emphasis, if you read First and Second Timothy and Titus, is on the word of God. He, he, the written word of God. He, he tells uh, Timothy in First Timothy 4, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Second Timothy, all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. He says right there that if you have the scripture, then you have everything you need for all that God wants you to trust him for, for all that God wants you to do in obedience to him for every good work. And he tells Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. So my point is, there, there are good reasons why, especially people in, in the Reformed camp of things, will argue that we should not think that everything that was happening in the first century is still happening today. Because there was a foundational nature to what was taking place there. And yet, there are those like John Owen and John Murray later on who say that does not mean the Spirit's not at work does not mean there's nothing today going on that's um, maybe like the Puritans would say is still what we would call the gift of prophecy. It's just in a different form. Or that God isn't still working to lead us in very personal ways. So we have to be careful of thinking that simply by saying everything that we see in 1 Corinthians 14 isn't necessarily still going on today. That doesn't mean that there isn't something going on that we might call prophecy or tongues even, um, or that God's leading of us is just um, objective without any subjective manifestations. And so I just want to close with that as a way of an encouragement 
to us, and we'll talk more about this next time. I don't know about you, but in my growing up in the church, there was um, this fascination with the idea that we could get direct revelation from God, that God was actually telling me what to do if I would just listen. Moment by moment, he was sort of whispering in my ear, this is the way, walk ye in it, type of thing. And there are those who would ask the question, why is it that we prefer that to this? Why would we prefer the idea that God is, with his still small voice, whispering in my ear, moment by moment, telling me what to do, as opposed to me having to read God's word and pray and think about how I'm to do what he told me to do. Well, part of it is, they would say, is that it seems much more spiritual. It seems much more spiritual to believe that I'm getting direct revelation from God about what I'm supposed to do or say or, or who I'm supposed to marry or what job I'm supposed to take and all those kinds of things. And they would say, we can be more authoritative when we say, God told me to do this. No discussion. If there's anything that will shut down discussion about whether or not you're making a wise decision, is if you can say, God told me. And so, growing up, myself and others kind of like that. You know, I like the idea of being to say, well, you know, I think God told me to do this, so let's not talk about whether it's wise or even whether it's right. You know, if God told me to do it, you know, just like he told Abraham to go sacrifice his son, who am I to question God? So you've got that dynamic going on. But then you also just have the very, very, very practical reality that it's very easy just to ne- neglect this book. Why read a book and study a book and labor to really understand it if all I need to do is listen better to that still small voice. Now, there are plenty of people that would argue for something like what I'm talking about, direct revelation, who would say, no, you shouldn't. You shouldn't neglect the word of God. But the reality is, for a lot of people, that is the practical result of thinking that we're simply to base our lives, base our decisions on direct revelation. And I've experienced how um, how unhappy consequences can come from living just that way. And so one of the things that um, Sinclair Ferguson does, he wrote an article on this, he, um, he said this, well-meaning Christians sometimes mistake the Spirit's work of illumination for revelation. So he's a Reformed theologian who would say, Sometimes part of our problem is we're making a mistake about what to call something. That there are things happening. That there are things happening in our hearts, in our lives, and that we're putting certain labels on it that give it more authority than it ought to be. Or we're not really just understanding exactly what the Spirit is doing in our day and time. So he would say, well-meaning Christians sometimes mistake the Spirit's work of illumination for revelation, which unhappily can lead to serious theological confusion and potentially unhappy practical consequences. But he says the reality is the idea that the Spirit of illumination is where the Holy Spirit gives us understanding of the Bible. He's not given us fresh revelation. He's given us understanding of the revelation we've already been given in terms of really understanding it, believing it, and seeing how it's supposed to be walked out in our lives. That's the work of the Spirit. But he says, um, this doctrine of the Spirit's illumination of the Word is a way of understanding some of the more mysterious elements of our Christian life. And he quotes another theologian named John Murray, who said this, As we are the subjects of this illumination by the Spirit, and are responsive to it, and as the Holy Spirit is operative in us to the doing of God's will, we will have feelings, impressions, convictions, urges, 
inhibitions, impulses, burdens, resolutions. Illumination and direction by the Spirit through the Word of God will focus themselves in our consciousness in these ways. He says we're not just robots or automata. He says we must not think these things are necessarily irrational or fanatically mystical. Now, why do I share that quote? Because he mentions impressions. And one of the ways that people today are defining the gift of prophecy is actually in terms of impressions. Wayne Grudem is a Reformed theologian who believes that prophecy is taking place today. And it's interesting how he basically defines prophecy today. He says that it is uh, the idea of God bringing things to mind, but not in a way that is authoritative like the Bible is. And he illustrates that by saying, you know, I believe, this is Wayne Grudem speaking, he says, at one point in my Christian life, I believe God put it on my heart to cancel my newspaper subscription to the Chicago Tribune because it was taking up too much of my morning time. And he defines prophecy as that kind of impression, that kind of guidance. And if I were to walk up to him and say, uh, Wayne, I believe the Lord wants you to um, cancel your subscription to the Chicago Tribune, he would say that would be an impression for somebody else. And he would see that as the gift of prophecy today. Well, whether or not you want to call it that or not, I think the problem with that is it may put too much weight on it. It may imply to some people that, well, if that's a revelation, then shouldn't I obey it? When Wayne Grudem himself would say, I see the gift of prophecy today through those kinds of impressions, God bringing things to mind, as kind of like uh, the advice that you get from a godly person, that you would weigh it to determine whether or not you would receive it. Now, in the Old Testament and in the first century, when God spoke, you were not supposed to kind of weigh it and determine whether or not you receive it. If it was a word from God, thus saith the Lord, you were obligated to receive it, whether you did or not. But if we receive an impression, I just had this thought, I should give $5,000 to Josh because he needs some work on his car. What do I do with that impression? Should I automatically think, well, that must be from God because I would never think of that. No, the Bible would say, you need to ask, would that be a right thing to do in light of the scripture? And secondly, would it be a wise thing to do? Because that's what the Bible says, that we are to let the Spirit lead us through the word of God, which teaches us what is right and wrong, and gives us a vision for what is wise. And yet, there still can be some differences of opinion about what's wise in certain situations. But I should not think that just because I have a random thought or because Alex walks up to me and says, yeah, I think you should give that $5,000 to Josh. I believe the Lord told me you should, that I should automatically assume. God calls us to listen to what's going on in our hearts because like Martin Lloyd-Jones says, you and I wake up every morning with somebody talking to us. And Martin Lloyd-Jones would say, it's your, it's your own soul, it's your own mind, it's your own heart speaking to you, telling you things. And um, so we have that reality that we've got stuff going on in our head all day long. We also have people telling us things, whether it's friends or family, or whether it's the news guy, or uh, media, social media, or whatever it is. And the question is, What do I take to be the authoritative word from God? And I believe the Bible teaches that this is the only thing that is the authoritative word of God, not the word of your husband or the word of your wife or your word of your boss or the news outlet, unless it's just what the Bible says. 
I have no authority as your pastor to tell you to do anything. I've heard of pastors telling their people when they could buy a house or when they could move or not move. I have no authority to tell you anything like that. I can't say thou shalt, the Lord says you shall shall not move or you should buy that house. I have no authority apart from the word of God. All I can say is God says, this is what God says. And that's the only way I can speak authoritatively. And that's the way we should listen to everything that comes our way through our own minds as we wrestle through things and as we hear things is how does it match up with what I find in the Bible? Which brings me back to where I began. We desperately need to know what the Bible says. We desperately need to be in the Bible so that we can know how to evaluate our own thoughts, how to evaluate what we're hearing, that we might trust God in the way we should, that we might love people in the way we should. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that you've given us your word, that it is infallible, it is inerrant, it is authoritative, and that we can evaluate our own thoughts, our own impressions, our own urges, our own inhibitions in light of what your word says. And we can seek to make right and wise decisions, all things considered, trusting that you do promise to give us wisdom, you do promise to lead us, sometimes in very mysterious ways, but always in accordance with your word, in accordance with the wisdom of your word. And so please help us as we evaluate our own thoughts and impressions and as we evaluate what other people are saying, what we're hearing, whether it's from our government or from social media or from anything else. And help us, Father, to be more diligent about wanting a clear understanding of the truth of your word and giving ourselves to it by reading our Bibles, meditating on it and praying over it on a regular basis, day by day. And especially as we seek to walk out various relationships and various circumstances that we might honor you and please you and love the people in our lives. Thank you, Father, for your word. I pray that somehow it would be helpful and encouraging to all of us here. And we pray that if there's anyone here who has not yet rested their heart and their life in your hands, Lord Jesus, trusted you as an able and willing Savior, I pray that they would do so even this day. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.